Good to be here with you. Uh, as as Pastor was mentioning, uh, Jackie's uh, ministry, besides being alongside of me and um, helping assess and train church planning couples, she also was the woman's director for the Evangelical Free Church of America for five years, I think it was. Yeah. And she continues her work in a ministry called Resound Now. It's a ministry of equipping women to be disciple makers. And so she's at that. She's in task force right now with women, and she does all these other things that uh, trying to push the mission forward in the life of women to make disciples that make disciples. So you can hear from her. We have um, five adult children, three naturally, two foster twins, actually, fraternal twins. Uh, we're the, we're the people that took people in when there was no organization or systems in place to take people in. And we have two uh, wonderful uh, foster daughters. Um, all of our children know the Lord. Um, still praying for a few grandchildren to, to come to Christ. But we have 12 grandchildren, and I have a, we actually have a granddaughter, our oldest, who's going to be having a daughter in June. So it kind of marks our age. Um, I often tell people that we started kind of early in marriage. Um, I was 12, Jackie was 17. Um, actually, I was 19 and she was 17. So we started early. Jackie came to faith in Christ three years after we were married, and I came into Christ seven years after that. So 10 years into our marriage, we already had three children. So um, kind of the good, bad, and ugly of life, isn't it? You know, nothing's just like it. We think it should be. Everything happens, and we are so grateful for the grace of God and what God has done. We're originally both from the Midwest, um, grew up in uh, kind of a rural Chicago area there before it was uh, taken over by the city. Um, we, I was a, should I mention I was a car dealer? Yeah. So um, I was general sales manager for Pontiac in the Chicago area. And then from there, um, Christ saved me. And we, I ended up uh, being on staff at my home church. It was a Bible church. Just grew richly there. Went to, went to Moody Bible Institute and did my undergrad and my graduate work there. Why we have had, why we had children. So um, I became a grandfather at 39. So again, we started young there too. And then uh, from there, things have just kind of snowballed. We went to Wisconsin. That's when we came into the free church. And we pastored a church that was 120 years old in a European Dutch dairy farming community. That's a mouthful. Because we left Naperville, Illinois, which was about 130,000 people, went to a town of 1,600. So we had a little culture shock along the way. It was there that God, though, uh, gave us a vision and a heart to see new churches start. And we actually were able to see four churches initiated there. And then after that, eight years later... um, Wondering, God, what, what do you want for us? And it's always, and I don't know about you, but my Jackie actually saw that we would be leaving before I did. I just, you know, uh, being a strong leader, I was just kind of reluctant to pick up and go somewhere. And uh, Jackie saw it, and we ended up, uh, God took us out of there, and we became church planning missionaries in the Rocky Mountain District, Colorado, Wyoming, and the western part of South Dakota. In those 11 years, we saw 54 churches started. Uh, before 9-11, we were mentoring uh, two individuals. One guy had to go back because we do things legally. We had to send him back to his country of India and another one to Costa Rica. The guy in Costa Rica, Eduardo Castilla, has started the Evangelical Free Church of Costa Rica. 
without any of our missionaries didn't want to help. Uh, not because they were bad missionaries, but they said, we don't do it this way. Usually we do the work. Why are we letting a Costa Rican do the work? Isn't that kind of interesting? Eduardo now has branched off and he started churches and he's starting churches in Brazil and Cuba. It's just fun to watch God work like this. Our, our guy from India had to go back and his, he re, he's originally from Delhi. And Jonathan went back and he had started about seven or eight churches. His father before him was Titus Singh. His dad was known in Delhi because he had started 40 churches. Jonathan has a network now that has launched over 5,000 churches in 14 years. He is seeing people from Pakistan and all over northern Delhi, unreached people groups come to faith in Christ. It's just, we're, we're just, you know, at all what God has done. And all we did was coach them and equip them and befriend them and help them out as best we could. And just watching God take the gospel and spread it like that has just been magnificent to do. Since we've been here in the southeast, we've seen over 70 churches start. Um, We've had uh, 20 that have gone off to go with another denomination somewhere in the process, and unfortunately they've all closed. But we've gone from 60 churches to just a hair over 100 churches in 10 years. Our district is uh, all nine states, Louisiana through Florida, up through North Carolina and back down through Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, Puerto Rico, we have one church there, and Haiti. We have uh, five current church plants in Haiti. So our district has had a relationship with Haiti for about 15 years. Uh, Some of you may know Glenn Schreiber. Glenn is my boss, so to speak. We're in partnership. And so uh, he lives in Jacksonville. I live in Tennessee. And then uh, when he wanted me to come to Knoxville, he said it was right on the edge of the desert, whatever that meant. (laughs) And that meant that there, west of us, there were only six ministries. Now there's 12. Most of our churches are in the Tennessee, um, the Carolinas, and Florida. Florida has the majority of our churches. So, just, so Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, we have um, a couple in Georgia. We have a, a three in Georgia, three in Alabama, and we have two in Louisiana. That gives you a, just a broad strokes of where we are. I, I was telling uh, Pastor Chris that, you know, I have some pastors this morning that are getting up in shorts, sandals, and a T-shirt to preach. It's a different world. Our churches are different. They're all different styles of worship. They're all different styles of kind of people they're trying to reach. We just have an Ethiopian man, Jackie and I assessed in December, who just unloaded his truck yesterday in Atlanta to start a church to reach Ethiopians and other cultures, but he's working on his Ph.D. in human trafficking. Has a real heart for that. This will be his sixth church in the United States since he came here. So God's just at work, and it's just marvelous. About 21%, 22% of our churches in the United States of the Evangelical Free Church are, are not white. <laughs> They're a different color. It's multi-ethnic. Um, about uh, 60% of our churches have different ethnicities within the congregation. So it's different than that white Scandinavian group that started... 100 years ago. We are different. We're changing. America's changing. And I don't know about you, but even in my own family, from an Indian son-in-law to Latino grandson to a Latino daughter-in-law, I mean, life is moving and it's changing. Uh, Somebody said the other day, um, 
they were they were actually graduate was our it was my grandson graduating um, high school, and I told him the only constant you're going to face in life is change. That's just going to keep coming, and it's how we embrace it. Some of it's our expectations. I have a daughter who really struggles. My my little baby, who's 43, she struggles with expectations. I don't know if you do. You know, we we set our eyes and our minds on something we expect it to be so i remember um when i god called jackie and i to be church planting missionaries we we are missionaries we raise our own financial support um money to put in our gas tank everything we have to raise that's just the way it's been because we've gone to districts that just don't have money and this is one of them uh and um in that process um you know, our daughter just with her expectations. And even coming with our vision. I want to plant churches. Well, I found myself in a house, a log home, custom-built log home, on the side of a mountain in Telluride, Colorado, uh, 22 years ago. And I'm there, and I'm having this time with God, and I'm trying to think, God, give me a word. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to plant these churches? Because back then, there was nothing written. There's only one book written on planting a church. There's only one training mechanism in place on planting churches. And so I'm just there and I'm struggling. It's quiet. There's no TV. There's no cell phone reception. There's nothing there. And God led me to a passage and I got angry. I'm, 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 a, I'm a driven guy. I, I like action. You know what God gave me was Psalm 37, 7. He says, wait upon the Lord and wait patiently for me to act. So in planting churches, God was calling me to pray. That was it. There was nothing else. And I don't know about you, but that, that, that isn't exactly what I wanted to hear at the time. <laughs> I wanted an agenda. Um, I had expectations of what I thought it should look like. Then God later on gave me a vision to see a thousand churches planted. And I'm thinking, and, and Lord, you want me to pray? See, all of us have a vision or expectations of our preferred future or what we would like in our, even our relationships, our jobs. And sometimes those things just get twisted, turned, and it changes. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 1. Because it's, it's wrestling with this. I remember one time I, in my first church, my home church, I really sensed that God may want me to stay as the pastor, and yet God was telling me to leave, so I resigned. And my elders talked me to go in through a vote to be the senior pastor, and we lost by three votes. <laughs> and and at, at the time of the vote, we were living in the church parsonage. It was my oldest son's high school graduation party, so we have all of our, both of our families were there. Most of our families at the time didn't know the Lord. And here comes this elder, head elder, chairman of the board, and he's weeping. And I knew right away I had to make a decision. How am I going to embrace this? It was unexpected. It, it wasn't what we had planned. It isn't what everybody thought they had planned. I had lost a vote to be their pastor by three votes. I guess they couldn't handle being a used car dealer and then being the pastor of the church. I, I don't know what it was. But then God called Jackie and I to stay there for 10 months and bring healing, and we did. And then when we left to go to the free church, the band that replaced me that I found stayed for 25 years. I mean, God just was so gracious in the midst of that. But there's still expectations that weren't met, expectations that fell apart. And so it's easy for 
us to want life to go in a certain way. I have a friend who um, died a couple of years back, but he, he was so he, he was almost bound by what he planned every day, and he just couldn't envision anybody interrupting that. And it was so perplexing, it created such anxiety in him because of the unexpected and the unplanned. And just if everything would go his way. We've all wrestled with different things like that. In Acts chapter 1, we, we see an interesting scripture. It's in, found in verse 14 and 15. Jesus had just ascended. And the disciples didn't know what to do except wait. Just what God told me to do to plant a church is wait. And so the disciples, in verse 14, these with all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and started to speak. You know what's interesting about There's several interesting things in this thing. Jesus rose from the dead. We know he appeared to 500. We know that he spoke to his disciples before he ascended in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We know they told him to wait until the Holy Spirit came upon them. They didn't know what that clue was, what that was. And what they did is they got together and prayed. So now there's 120 in a row. So if you look at the life of Christ, he always had the crowd. And then um, he, he had this apparently 70 to 120 people that were convinced he was the Messiah. And then you had the 12, the disciples. Of course, one of those turned out to be a traitor. And what are they doing? They're praying. They're also praying with women. That was just something you didn't do back then. In the same room, praying together. Mother of Jesus was there. His brothers was a gathering there just praying. Kind of wanting to find out, God, what are you doing here? What's next? Jesus has ascended. What do you want to show us? And I believe in the midst of there, and I don't know if you remember, most of you have, I'm sure, know the Lord and have realized this. You go back to the time in the garden in Matthew 26. Four times Jesus asked the disciples, just wait here and pray with me. And I don't know if you remember, go, go back there. Four times. You know what they did? They fell asleep. Have you ever tried to pray for a length of time? Do you ever fall asleep? I remember when I was going to Moody. Now, you have to realize the average student at Moody at the time I went to Moody was 18 to 21. And here I am in my 31, 32 years old. So I would drive into the city early in the morning to beat the traffic. And I go to this little chapel in the guy's dorm, in the boy's dorm, where um, almost no student used. Or so I thought. So one morning I'm there, and I'm on my face with my Bible on the platform because there was an exit light on. That's all the only light I need. And I we get there like 5.36 in the morning, and I was praying, and I fell asleep. I mean, my face right in the crease of the Bible. You know? All of a sudden, I start to hear people giggling. Or most of, not, one, not the most embarrassing, but certainly one of them. And I'm sitting there, and... What I realize is that the room is filled with students and teachers. It sat about 100 people. And I learned it was mission conference week, and as a married student, I didn't have to be there. I literally took my Bible, got on my hands and knees, got up off my, my, my belly and my face, and crawled out the exit door. 
Never talked to it anybody. Nobody ever mentioned it to me, too. I don't know if it was my size. Nobody teased me about it, but boy, was that embarrassing. But I know, so when I read that passage of the disciples sleeping, I get that. I do get that. I think some of you get that, too, just by your giggles. Yeah. But there were two things, I think, when I look at this. Something happened in the disciples' behavior that was so significant that it changed them from falling asleep to getting together with 120 people to pray. 120 people in a prayer meeting is a pretty healthy-sized group of people. I don't know if they all prayed separately or they all prayed out loud. That was a typical Jewish thing. They would all pray at the same time. I have no idea of what was going on there, but they were praying, and they were certainly seeking the Lord. I think there's two factors I want you to walk away with today. I think a realization as I read this, and as I look back at the life of disciples, that I think changed the disciples' behavior, the way they would lead people to pray. The first one is this. I believe the first truth here is they believe that without prayer they would receive no power. I mean, that's what Jesus told them to do was wait until power comes upon you. Well, what is power? In Luke 24, he said, I'm going to send my promise upon you through my heavenly Father, And then he told the disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses. So they prayed. Have you ever ever felt powerless? I mean, just really utterly powerless as a believer? Ever try to love somebody you just don't like? That's powerless. Ever tried to do something and your heart just wasn't in it? See, see, I, when I come to prayer, I, I, I think one of the strengths I get out of my weaknesses is realizing power is only going to come when I'm on my knees and I'm before God. It's dependence. I think the disciples got this. If you turn to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, familiar passage for these end times, as they call it. And Paul wrote to Timothy and says, But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will become lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, hatred, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We've all read that verse, but then the last tag of verse 5 says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. See, I think as believers, all humanity, all humanity leans to being self-sufficient. We have a propensity towards being selfish and want things our way. So when we talk about expectations and we talk about vision and we talk about what we want to see happen and God does something completely different, I've had to learn that when I interview church planters and somebody's telling me they have a call and they want to do it a certain way, I have to sit back and say, okay, how, how can I coach them and encourage them to do what God has given them at the same time protect them from doing something really stupid? I had a guy who actually went to, he pastored a mega church in the freight church and he came down here to plant a church and was in Lexington, Kentucky, just north of here a few hours. And uh, he raised over $360,000 in three years to plant that church. That church should have been a really good church. 
He had ability to gather people, but he made a mistake. And I, I begged him not to do it. He signed a lease for a building that only sat 40 people. Stupid. He thought maybe we could open the doors and people would just stand there and listen to me preach. You've got to be kidding me. Most people said they never came back to the church because they couldn't find a seat. That may seem insignificant to you, but when you're trying to coach somebody to be successful and what the vision God's given them, down the street there turned out to be a building he could have used for free. It was larger. But there's just something in us sometimes that feel, I'm going to do this. And I think a lot of times we leave God out of those decisions and we leave God out of a lot of things. So often today I think it's, it's really a trap, but I think a, a lot of times as believers we have, are denying the power of God by not being dependent upon him. Because when I read 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, those characteristics I see sometimes in the church and how we make decisions. Um, we saw an uh, interesting dichotomy when we were in Naperville, Illinois, an upper middle class community. We had some very fine businessmen making decisions. None of the elders in that group except for two had ever led anybody to Christ. When I went to the farming community, everybody had led somebody to Christ except for two. The, the difference was interesting. Just a practical ministry other than somebody who can make a business decision. Where the church, our mission is to make disciples that make disciples. Uh, that, that's the mission of every church. That's what Christ is going to build his church because he wants us to be about multiplying, making disciples. That's why, I, that's why God led me to church planting. In his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, Jim Cimbala wrote, God is attracted to weakness. He cannot resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. He said, weakness makes room for fire. Paul said it was in his weakness he found the power and strength he needed. I mean, all of us have experienced some things and we look back and we say, where did I get the strength to do that? Or we ask, how did that person do this? Very difficult times. And yet at the same time, it's in those times people raise up. So it's in your weakness and in your insecurities and in our inadequacies. We can find exactly what we need in dependence upon the Father in those moments and asking the Holy Spirit to show up. Because it's not about us. I mean, I mean I've, I've had a... I remember one time I had to... Uh, do a message at the bottom of the Grand Canyon on the Havasupai Indian Reservation. And when I'm preaching, not only were there dogs coming out, but all of a sudden there were chickens walking around. <laughs> you know, it's just, it just not the expected. But in that midst, I still had to ask God for what I needed to get this truth out so that people's lives would be transformed and changed. It's the same with our lives. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 5, uh, 15, he says in verse 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The word there, nothing, is absolutely nothing. So how much of life do we do by rote? What would happen if we just said, Father, here's the day. How can I glorify you today? Help me to accomplish what you want to accomplish. I don't know what that is. You may not know either. Because again, life is just brings those unexpected unexplained things to us all the time. Ian Bounds, a well-known 
a writer from the 1800s wrote, was right, always wrote on prayer, but he says, when we calmly reflect upon the fact that the prog- progress of our Lord's kingdom is dependent upon prayer, it is sad to think that we give so little time to that holy exercise. He writes, everything depends upon prayer, and yet we neglect it not only to our own spiritual hurt, but also to the delay and injury of our Lord's cause upon earth. The forces of good and evil are contending for the world. If we would, we could add to the conquering power of the army of righteousness, yet our lips are sealed and our hands hang listlessly by our side, and we jeopardize the very cause in which we profess to be deeply, deeply interested by holding back from the prayer chamber. If I can encourage you anything this morning, as I would take Pastor Chris's admonition and I would lift Megan up every day and ask you to just allow the Holy Spirit to use her to touch people's lives. We may never even know how God uses her life there. It's immaterial. But I think without prayer, she's not going to have the power she needs to go in those unexpected times. Just because she's going to a university over there and the people look different doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And doesn't mean she's going to not face opposition. So if I'd encourage you anything, just lift up Megan every day and just, when she returns, just look and see how God used her life. That would be just such an encouragement. You know, the disciples went on in Acts chapter 4 and, uh, you know, when they were beat up and released, the religious Leaders had captured Peter, told him to stop preaching the resurrection. And they all, all the disciples got in a room and they played and the place was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. That's the kind of boldness that Megan's going to need. It's the kind of boldness we need in our jobs, in our neighborhoods. Sometimes in our families. Jack and I were talking about that on the way here. Of How many believers we know whose children and grandchildren aren't walking with Christ and don't even know Christ? And maybe you've never heard the message. Uh, my, my best friend one time, I, I, we asked him. Um, I, I, I led him to Christ three years after I came to faith in Christ. And I asked him, has he ever shared his spiritual story with his children? And he said he never did. I said, what? Now, he had led other businessmen to Christ. I said, you haven't even shared it with your child? He said, well, I took him to church. I said, that doesn't solve anything. Church is good, but it should support what you do in the family. Not be, it isn't like you park your kids in a pew at church and think they're going to be a godly believer. You've got to speak into it. You've got to live your life into it. And so my friend Rick had never shared his story with his own children. We'd encourage him to do that, but he, I, I don't know if he's ever done it. So at this juncture in the book of Acts, I believe the disciples learned that vital truth that without prayer, they would have no power. I think the second truth they realized that, that changed their prayer life is that without prayer, they would have no guidance. Um, I could take you through the book of um, Acts and show you all the countless things, but rather I'm going to take you on a little, little journey here through the book of John. I don't know if you like the book of John, but turn to... Chapter 5, verse 19. Let me show you a few verses here. If anything, I'm hoping that these verses will encourage you. Because Jesus models this this truth that without prayer, there's no guidance. In chapter 19, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 19, 
Jesus said, I know it's Jesus because mine's in red. I don't know if yours is. But it says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Now, what you have to make note of, and, and, and I know a lot of you have read the scriptures before, but you go on in chapter 14, you find out that Jesus was telling the believers, you're going to do greater things than me. Jesus was being told he'll do greater things by the Father. But it wasn't until, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless he sees the Father doing it. Interesting verse. In chapter 6, verse 45, um, verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Another convicting uh, reminder of why Jesus came. You jump to chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he who has, left, has not left me alone, for I am always do the things that are pleasing to him. So now he's only doing what the Father shows him. Now he's only doing what the Father tells him to say. When your pastor gets up here on a Sunday morning, or anybody, they should be trying to deliver exactly what God told them to say. Nothing more, nothing less. See, when I was in that house in Telluride, Colorado, by the way, we were called there to stay for a few weeks to shut down a church. We ended up staying for five months and restarted the church. But it was in that point that God gave me this particular, these particular truths and that told me when I went, whenever I go into a church for the first time to speak, I'm to deliver this. That's why I'm here today. That's why I'm speaking on this today. Not because I chose to, but because God called me to do it. Your, your, your God, our God, speaks to your pastor and tells him what to say and what to speak. That's the advantage of being before the Father and not only seeing, but listening to what he's trying to say to us. You go to chapter 12, and it even gets more convicting for us in verse uh, 49 and 50, Jesus said, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a, cabinet, a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. For I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak as just as the Father has told me. Can you imagine if we leaned into that verse as a father's? Husbands, wives, mothers, just in friendship? And we only spoke the things that God was asking us to speak. Chapter 14, verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So if, if we spent time before our Heavenly Father looking for that guidance, looking for... And, and by the way, all four Gospels, I think it was Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary, he's gone home to be with the Lord, said the four Gospels represent 47 days in the life of Christ and 33 of those he's either alone or he's praying that's another perspective when you think you're re reading Matthew Mark Luke and John they're, they're only represent 47 days in the life of Christ 
But 33 of those, he's alone or he's praying. He's always calling his disciples, come away with me. Let's go here. Let's pray. <coughs> and there's a reason behind it. You know, I think that's why the disciples only asked Jesus one thing. Do you remember what that was? Lord, teach us to pray. It wasn't teach us to heal. It wasn't teach us to speak. It was, Lord, teach us to pray. <coughs> they saw something in the life of Jesus that caused them to realize that he is in such communion with the Father that they, Lord, how are you praying? He was laying aside his will for the Father's will, but he was listening. I've had some uh, very interesting coaching times with some of my planters, and sometimes I'd say, well, they're, they're stuck. They don't know what to do next in planting. You two, have a, as a couple that started this church, you know that. So I'd say, well, what is God telling you? They said, don't be funny. No, I said, really? Have you ever gotten before the Lord opened up the scriptures and say, Lord, what do you want to show me today? What do you want me to do next? And then whatever comes to your mind, I said, just start to write it down. And as long as it doesn't go against scripture, maybe you need to step into that and do that. And then the light bulb goes on. As a pastor, we used to counsel people who were struggling with insecurities and adequacies and I give and I and I give them the book of First John and a blank piece of paper and I'd say go in that room there and just read that book through and then just keep reading the book through and through and through again until you meet God. We never had anybody that didn't meet God in that room. It's just getting alone and asking the Father, Lord, what's what do you want to say to me? What do you want me to do? Jesus said, My sheep know my voice. So the thought goes out, what are we listening to? Life is busy and there's a lot of things coming. I'm, I'm a guy like, and I'm kind of schizophrenic. I like noise. There's other times I like quiet. I was on my front porch the other morning when you texted me, Chris. Quiet and serene, I get a text about, can I step in? It's like, well, sure I can. But I was quiet. Do you have quiet like that? Where you can actually hear God speak. There wasn't a doubt when I got the request. Lord brought that scripture back to my mind that you know as well too as a pastor. Be ready to preach in season and out of season. No problem. I just said yes. But I was listening. And so it's asking the questions. It's listening. Um, you know, apart from the Holy Spirit in prayer, dealing with expectations of life, Trust me, I have expectations. There's also worry, there's anxiety, there's striving, not taking time to rest in the Father. All those things are realities in our life just because of life. But to actually have that time. We have a granddaughter. In fact, our, our, one of our sons has taken his whole family to Cambodia again to work with orphanages. Um, but his oldest daughter, a couple of years ago, she went to camp to serve at a camp, and the camp counselor sent them all out with their Bibles and a sheet of paper and just listened to God. Well, her life was radically changed because she was asking a question, and God spoke to her, and in the quiet, she heard it. And she'll most likely, she feels called to be in missions. That's awesome. But she wouldn't have heard that if she didn't get away 
and ask the question. See, I believe the disciples really understood those truths that without prayer, there's no power. Without prayer, there's no guidance. It was, they saw it modeled in the life of Christ. So much so they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Might want to add a little fasting in that too. So when it comes to the church planning world, um, I can usually see when things aren't working and there's not a lot of activity because it causes me to go back and look at my prayer life. Am I interceding enough? Am I fasting? Am I asking Lord to raise up? Right now in our district, we have 13, 14 church plants, 13 projects starting, and I have another 10 people on a prospect list that we're trying to uh, nail down and get them to sign the covenant. There's a lot of activity. But trust me, it wasn't because I had this multimedia presentation. It's because I'm trying to do what the God first told me to do 22 years ago, and that's to pray and to wait. And God sends them. So what are you waiting for? What kind of expectations are you dealing with? What are are some of the things that you're wrestling with? Um, Maybe things haven't gone your way and you're not happy about it. Ever get angry at God? I got angry at God that time in Telluride, Colorado, that log home. I'm saying, God, of all the things, why are you telling me to pray? Wasn't it? It was stupid. Jackie actually came, came and leaned over the balcony. She goes, what's going on down there? I said, I don't know. I'm just wrestling with God right now. I didn't like what God told me. I want to do. He says, wait. I want to do. He said, pray. Be depend, depend on him is what he wanted me to do. There's an old movie going back, I think 1991. It was called The Dead Poets Society. Anybody ever see it? Robin Williams played in it. You know, this is probably the, this scene probably gripped me more than any other scene in that movie. Um, I don't know if the other, you know, thinking back, I thought this morning, should I even be saying the movie? You know, you might go there and watch it and say, whoa, my goodness. Um, So I'm going to give you that disclaimer. Please forgive me. But in that movie, Professor John Keating, played by Robin Williams, it's it's a boys' school, young men. And it comes, um, he, he, he was teaching on poetry. He comes in one door of the classroom, whistling, walks through the other door of the classroom, and the students are wondering, what is going on? You know, that's Robin Williams. He can, he can pull that off or pull it off when he was alive anyway. And he kind of grabs him by this way, and he leads them out in the hallway, and they come in front of a, uh, the trophy case. Have you ever seen a trophy case in a school with all the trophies and all the pictures of all the past-gone people that have gone through here and played sports and earned those trophies? And... Um, he, he turns to a guy named Mr. Pitts. He goes, that's a rather unfortunate name, Mr. Pitts. But open your hymnal and read page 542 and read the first stanza of the poem. And Mr. Pitts reads, gather he rosebuds while he may. Old time is still flying and the same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. He goes, thank you, Mr. Pitts. Gather he rosebuds while he may. The Latin term for that sediment is carpe diem. Now, who knows what that is? And there's always a student raising his hands up, you know, me, 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 kind of a thing. And he says, carpe diem, seize the day, seize the day, gather he rosebuds, why he may. 
And Keating said, why do you write those words? It was just quiet. Typical class, I think. Keating goes on, he says, because we are food for worms, lads, because believe it or not, each of us in this room one day is going to stop breathing, we're going to turn cold, and we're going to die. Can't get away from it. I'd like you to step forward. I want you to cruise these faces from the past. He said, walk by, many of them. He's pointing out their pictures. He says, they gathered slowly to look. He says, they're not different from you, are they? They have the same haircuts, the same feelings of being invincible, just like you. Same things like, this will never happen to me. They are destined for great things. The world is theirs, just like you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? He goes, you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. And he paused. But he says, if you listen really close, really close, listen. And he got behind him and he started to press their, their shoulders into the glass. I don't know if you remember that in the movie. It was, a, it was an interesting scene. And he says this, Carpe. Carpe. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. And there was silence as they looked at those pictures. See, when I think of dependent prayer, realizing the need for prayer, that without it we would have no power, we would have no guidance, I think the extraordinary is open to all of us as to what God would want to do. Even in times when our expectations aren't there, even in times when, when the unexpected comes our way, we can find God in the midst of those. We can find the strength we need, and we can find the power we need in our weaknesses to say things we never would have said anywhere else. It only comes through dependence and prayer upon the Father. And then living a life seeking the Lord for that guidance. Let me pray for you. Father, As um, I thank you for this wonderful group of people. I thank you for their smiles, their laughter. I thank you for a good sense of humor here, Father. I thank you for their pastor and his wife. And I thank you for all that you've done, Lord, in this legacy church. And I would just ask that you continue to bless and honor them, strengthen them with the resolve that they need, Lord, to fulfill the mission you've given them as a church. And, Lord, we just commit our days to you, and uh, we love you, and we thank you, Father, for your unfailing love for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.